everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Senator Scott Weiner, who represents San Francisco in the state Senate. Senator Weiner is the author of recently introduced legislation SB 938, which would ensure expert testimony used as admissible evidence in court has sound methodology and would provide opportunity to challenge wrongful convictions. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you for having me. Um, So um, can you explain what SB 938 does? Uh, Sure, it does um, a few things, and uh, it's it's really tightening up um, existing uh, expert witness standards and just sort of big picture uh, in both civil trials and criminal trials, uh, expert witnesses come in and uh, explain complicated uh, scientific uh, and other um, technical uh, information to the jury. So it might be, uh, you know, presenting fingerprinting evidence, or it might be ballistics evidence about the trajectory of a bullet, or um, it, it could be on a whole variety of subjects. And extra witnesses play a very important role at trial in taking uh, information that your typical juror, your typical layperson would not necessarily understand or be familiar with, and explaining it in a plain English way uh, based on scientific information. Um, so it's very important uh, and very valuable. It's also, it can be very powerful. Uh, and if that expert testimony is somehow weak or flawed or not really, uh, or bogus, um, you can have a situation where a jury just accepts it because there's an expert on the stand and um, and someone who's innocent could be convicted or you could have a miscarriage of justice. Uh, and so judges are required to make sure that expert witnesses are qualified and that there's some methodology to what they're presenting, uh, but the standards are not tight enough. And so what we're trying to do here is make sure, um, for example, that expert witnesses don't rely on circular reasoning, meaning that they they assume their conclusion in the argument that they're making, and that can happen uh, sometimes. Uh, we're also wanting to make sure that if you have uh, an area of expert testimony um, where there is a dispute within the expert community about um, a particular methodology, um, that 
that gets taken into account and uh, potentially excluded from evidence. Uh, and then for people who have been convicted uh, based on uh, scientific or expert um, uh, testimony that has since been debunked, uh, it's no longer considered scientifically valid, we want to make it really straightforward for that person to seek a new trial. Uh, so that, that's the gist of the bill. Um, so how did this legislation come about? Well, um, I work um, pretty regularly with the Innocence uh, Project, uh, which is, of course, a leading organization trying to uh, prevent innocent people from being convicted of crimes uh, and to uh, get uh, in to, to, to free innocent people who are currently uh, serving time for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, and so a few years ago, uh, I authored legislation that was uh, brought to me by the Innocence Project uh, to, to modernize California's eyewitness identification standards. A lot of times, uh, eyewitness identifications, which are very powerful, um, can be false. Um, and, uh, and we want to make sure that the police are using the most accurate methods um, around eyewitness uh, identifications. And so we did pass that bill into law. Uh, and then they came to me uh, early this year um, with this uh, proposal. And I took a look at it and looked at the background. And I'm a former trial attorney, so I've uh, both presented expert witnesses before and I have cross-examined uh, and sought to undermine expert witnesses before. So I'm definitely familiar with the challenges when uh, expert witnesses presenting uh, testimony that I don't think had a basis. Uh, and so uh, it made sense for me to to proceed with the legislation. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things is that when when you look at the statistics, jurors tend to believe expert witnesses whether or not their testimony is credible. Yes, and that is why um, judges have such a critically important role to play in screening. Uh, expert witnesses before they're allowed to take the stand. And this bill will raise the standards uh, for judges in making that uh, gatekeeper decision. Because once you allow an expert witness to testify, um, you know, overwhelmingly uh, jurors do not have that base of knowledge. They don't know uh, fingerprinting. They don't know ballistics. They don't know um, blood uh, blood testing technology. They don't know uh, neurology. Most jurors don't, you know, myself included, don't have that expertise. Uh, and so you put an expert witness on the stand who pronounces, this is the, this is my opinion. This is my conclusion. Uh, it is, uh, it's a very powerful uh, for a jury. Uh, we also have something that's referred to as the um, the CSI effect, but you know the TV show CSI uh, about all you know forensic, you know which is all about forensic uh, and expert uh, uh, evidence. Uh, and so, unfortunately, jurors sometimes expect that that kind of evidence is going to be uh, presented, and they over rely on it, uh, and they give it too much weight, uh, and that makes it all the more important for a judge. To make sure that before expert testimony is presented to a jury, that it's been properly vetted, that, that there's a real scientific basis for it, that it's not um, just an, an art, uh, a theory that, that's disputed within the expert community, and so forth. 
And my my experience watching judges is most of the time they want to um, kind of punt on these issues. They want to allow the jury to decide, even though the jury may not be qualified to decide. So how is this going to change that? Um, well, there are some judges who take that approach. And in addition, you know, judges are, are um, you know, uh, people with a lot of experience uh, in the law and, you know, really smart people, but they're not, you know, experts in all of these areas. And so, you know, sometimes it's challenging for the judges um, to make the determination. And so um, what we're proposing will um, provide, uh, will really make more clear what the judges are supposed to do, um, have uh, more fleshed out standards that the judges are required to apply. And we'll make very, very clear that if you have an area in science or a, a, a proposed expert testimony that's really the subject of dispute within the relevant expert community, that that probably shouldn't come into evidence. Um, and and that if someone is incarcerated based on that kind of evidence, they should get a new trial. So this sounds like kind of a common sense bill, but is anyone going to oppose it? Uh, I don't believe we've seen any opposition so far. Uh, I, I, um, uh, you know, we were working with the different attorney communities, the civil attorneys, the, you know, the district attorneys, um, the public defenders. And so, you know, we'll, we'll certainly work with all the relevant, uh, um, you know, attorney uh, associations. Uh, but so far, we haven't seen any um any opposition. Uh, I'm sure there will be feedback and sometimes groups come forward that they're not opposed, but they have uh, suggestions or recommendations for how to make the bill better. And we, of course, always welcome that feedback. And will this offer an opportunity for somebody who was convicted prior to this to be able to challenge uh, convictions? Um, Yes, it will. It'll open up the possibility of uh, habeas corpus. And um, have you, you mentioned that you've worked uh, with, with the Innocence Project. Have you talked with uh, some wrongly convicted people about this as well? Um, I did about the other eyewitness identification legislation we did. I have not yet um, uh, spoken with uh, innocent people convicted about this specific issue, but I'm sure we will. Oops. Um, and, um, you know, faulty expert testimony is considered the second most common cause for wrongful convictions. So this, uh, this has the potential to be a pretty big impact. Um, uh, yes, uh, I, I, I think this bill is a very technical wonky kind of bill, um, but it, um, it will affect a lot of people and a lot of cases, and it will be a, um, a different approach to um, the way judges evaluate whether to allow expert testimony. So I think it's a positive step. It's not going to fix the problem in, entirely. There's always going to be, um, uh, you know, there's always the risk of problematic expert testimony, but I believe this legislation will reduce that risk. Has this legislation, uh, this specific legislation, been enacted anywhere else? 
Um, you know, I'm not aware of it being enacted anywhere else. Um, it's, uh, um, you know, there's a lot, every state has a somewhat different standard, uh, but I think this would make California um, one of the more forward-looking states when it comes to expert testimony. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show today. I really appreciate you having me. That was Senator Scott Weiner on SB 938. This bill is trying to address issues that we have seen at the Vanguard because often the problem is experts have low standards by which they're allowed to testify on. Just this week, we released an episode on a person who had faulty expert testimony against her. Here are some clips from the episode earlier this week on the case of Joanne Parks, a young woman who was accused and convicted of starting a 1989 fire that killed her children. However, there is evidence that the fire could actually have been accidental. But faulty expert testimony that is no longer supported has continued to prevent her exoneration. Here are some clips of my conversation with Mix Parks attorney Raquel Cohen. Today we have Innocence Project attorney Raquel Cohen, who has represented Joanne Parks. Welcome to our show, Raquel. Hi, thank you for having me. So I know I gave like the 30,000-foot overview, but I think it's important for our listeners to understand what was the evidence presented at trial and why is that evidence wrong? So at the time of trial, um, they went, okay, before they started to even say this was criminal, they believed the fire was accidental. Um, And they went in there and they looked at the burn patterns on the walls and fire investigators do this. This is how they find out where the fire started. And once they know where the fire started, they can look at what started the fire in that area. Um, At the time, this house was burned very badly. The fire burned anywhere between five and 20 minutes in what we call post-flashover conditions. There was a lot of air movement in the house, which changes fire patterns. But at the time, in 1992, they weren't considering things that today would completely change the investigation. So they eventually came to the conclusion that the fire was intentionally started and it was an arson because what appeared to be multiple um, areas of origin, so that means you would have to have a fire starting in two points in the house, and that less likely will support an accidental cause. Um, If you have two, it's more likely somebody intended those two to start in different rooms. And they also based it on burn patterns for a closet door where the third child was later found um, hiding in that closet. And they used that to say, no, these burn patterns actually show that this child was barricaded in the closet. Um, But using the methods today, that's just that science isn't there to support any of those theories. So one of the, I I guess, tragedies of this case is that the original investigator refused to admit that they had made a mistake, right? Uh, Yeah, that continues today. Anyone who had their hands on the case early in the 1989 and the early 90s still stand by this conviction and um, still base their opinions on the pseudoscience that was once believed to be um, true. 
How do they justify it based on modern science, though? Isn't that a good question? Um, I I struggle with that um, that question because uh, it seems pretty clear, and from the many experts that I've talked to, the science simply just doesn't support that conclusion. I believe that there's some tunnel vision and some, if you truly believe something, uh, you will see the result that you want to see. And it's actually defined in um, what they use their guidebook as bias, cognitive bias, expectation bias, um, and uh, confirmation bias. So when you look at a burn pattern that would maybe indicate an arson, but if it could also indicate something completely different like ventilation in the room they just don't see the alternate explanation and they really just lean into the guilty interpretation of that pattern and then talk about your expert because his testimony was so critical so um i met uh dr gorbett while we were prepping for the hearing actually uh he's also a professor He's also a scientist. He has published many articles on the issues faced in our case. Um, and he was able to explain it not only to me, but to the judge um, and to my colleagues about on, in a very like layperson simple way on why this case is not an arson um, and the issues with it. So he came in um, and explained ventilation driven patterns to the judge. And it really did seem like our judge was getting it. Um, he was able to, you know, bring in all of his research and publications, which is something we didn't have um, early on in this case. But uh, since that hearing, he's also been able to use his expertise in um, computer modeling to uh, debunk just the theory that the prosecutors relied on at the time of trial and still kind of heavily rely on. So we've been, he's really been the key in, uh, in proving that Joanne really didn't start this fire. And one of the interesting things in the book, and um, bear with me, it's been about a year since I read it, but uh, the original investigators didn't even seem to really understand flashover, right? Oh, yeah. So the original investigators said flashover had not occurred. And it was a huge debate during the trial because the defense expert was like, hey, it definitely occurred. Um, and they had even at the time the defense who said it did occur had a very limited understanding of what that meant for fire pattern interpretation uh the prosecution had to say no no it didn't occur and the defense <laughs> expert crazy is kind of how if you read the six thousand pages of transcripts the prosecution experts and prosecution just attacked the defense expert saying he just wants you to think flashover so it debunks our theory but it didn't happen um, today, everybody except the original investigator are like, well, yeah, flashover did happen, but our side is saying because it happened, you can't interpret these burn patterns this way. And their side is saying, well, it happened, but we can still interpret those patterns that way. Um, and so that's kind of still what's happening. But you're right. At the time of the original trial, um, the expert just said, no, it didn't happen. And... Um, then describe exactly what kind of judicial process uh, she comes to. Is this in 2015 or is this later? 
um, the post-conviction. Right. Is that, okay, so in 2015 is the first time we filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in the California Superior Court. You start at the bottom. Um, and we said um, we had a bunch of evidence to show that the original trial was false and it was a violation of her due process because it was um, based on pseudoscience. Uh, and um, there had been such a sh- shift in the science. We had a full evidentiary hearing. It took 10 months because habeas corpus litigation isn't a priority because it's, there's no like a constitutional right to have like a speedy habeas hearing. So the judge we got assigned only had two days per month at most to put us in front of him. We each had three experts, so there were six experts total. We had openings and closings. Um, and some briefing in the middle. So it took 10 months. Then um, it was 90 days. A little bit after 90 days, we got the denial. The court ended up denying our petition for a habeas corpus, saying that um, if the original trial was battle of the experts and the jury believed the prosecution, and today it's still battle of the experts, and he just kind of said, well, one side says this, and the other side says this, and I don't know who to believe, so I'm denying the petition. It wouldn't really matter. He did say... The evidence at trial was false, but he didn't take it to the next step to say, had they not introduced the false evidence, it would have changed the trial. So we um, brought that another habeas petition to the Court of Appeal, and they waited four months to summarily deny it. And what that means is they just kind of give a stamp denial and no reason. Um, soon after that, I filed in the California Supreme Court. And within eight days of filing, they ordered informal briefing. And we're still right now in the middle of informal briefing. Expert testimony is a huge problem in the criminal justice system. As we talked about with Raquel Cohen, one of the big problems with the criminal justice system is that judges want to not have to weigh in on competing expert testimony. And so even though one of the experts in the Joanne Parks case was credible and the other was thoroughly discredited, the judge did not want to weigh between the two. And I've often seen in trials that what the judge will simply do when facing conflicting testimony from experts is defer to the jury, the jury that is fundamentally unqualified to weigh scientific evidence. And then of course, the big problem that we've had from time immemorial is that much of this science is not actual science. It's never been tested. It's never been double blind administered. There's no evidence that's generated that these are valid conclusions. And that sounds a little bit far-fetched, but the problem ends up being that we end up with a system where people are convicted and then they're stuck there based on evidence that's really not existent. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for another episode. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. 
You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.